Hi, this is Randy Backman from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcast presents Real Rock with Andy King. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Real Rock. I'm your host, the rock and roll reverend Andy King, and today we're going to be looking at Pink Floyd's The Wall, the 1982 film starring that guy from Live Aid. I will be looking at this film in depth, so consider this your spoiler warning. You can purchase the film from Amazon or Vudu, or just borrow it from a stoner friend, and then come back for our lesson. As always, I will be answering your questions, such as, Is there anybody in there? Is anyone home? And by the way, which one's pink? Roger Waters spat on a dude once. Now, knowing how ornery Roger is, I'm surprised he hasn't done it a couple of times, but in 1977, in Montreal, he crossed his own lines of decency when he spat on a fan. The Floyd shows of 77 didn't have the intimacy of their earlier shows. They were playing now to stadiums. The mass of adoring fans was referred to by Waters as, quote, the human cattle pen in front of the stage, end quote. On the final show of their In the Flesh tour at Olympic Stadium, a teenage fan was ripping through the net separating the stage and the fan corral. Incensed by this, Roger expelled his saliva on the fan's face. Shocked by his own behavior, Waters made the conscious decision to accept the burden of insight and find out who he really was and where he fit in with fame, art, and his own neuroses. His journey into himself became The Wall. Well, the idea for The Wall came from 10 years of touring with rock shows, I think. Particularly the last few years when uh, in 75... And in 77, we were playing to very large audiences, some of whom were our old audience who can, who'd come to hear what we wanted to play, but most of whom were only there for the beer in big stadiums. And uh, consequently, it became rather an alienating experience doing the shows. And I became very conscious of a war between us and our audience. And so this record started out as being an expression of those feelings. 
Released in November of 1979, the ambitious double album quickly became a financial hit for the studios, selling over a million copies in the first two months, mostly due to their hit single, Another Brick in the Wall Part 2. And you know this one. Take all the adjectives that you could use to describe the album. Ambitious, deep, maybe overthought. Take all those adjectives and multiply them by 10, and you just might begin describing the concert tour. The British rock superstar group Pink Floyd exceeded any other rock performance ever staged on their current tour in connection with their tremendously successful album, The Wall. The two-and-a-half-hour show consisted of a 70-member stage crew, which placed 420 polyesterine blocks together to form a massive wall, spanning the entire width of the stadium floor. Once the wall was completed, it was used as a huge screen to show brilliantly designed characters described in the music. Large inflatable puppets emerged, and even an airplane prop soared over the audience. At the end of the show, the wall crumbled to the floor with the help of a special computerized system. Tickets for the Pink Floyd concert sold out immediately, and thousands of people from the Philadelphia area bussed themselves up to New York, a three-hour ride each way, and paid an unprecedented $16 each to see the show. Blending a rock concert, a Broadway show, and a caustic fascist rally seems very cool, but it proved to be very expensive. Between February 7, 1980 and June 17, 1981, they only performed 31 shows. They turned a profit on none of them. Money gets back. I'm all right, Jack. Keep your hands off my stack. New car, caviar, four-star daydream. Think I'll buy me a football team. Absolute rubbish, laddie. A film based on the album was to come out before the album was even finished. The original idea was a concert film with a few extra scenes and added animation from Gerald Scarf. Scarf was a political cartoonist that the band had met. He had provided caricatures of the band for their 74 tour program. He went on to do various animated sequences for the Animals tour, as well as a full-length video for the song Welcome to the Machine. Scarf drew the characters on the wall's album sleeves and the animated segments that projected on the wall during the tour. Scarf and Waters had worked together preparing a full storyboard with ideas for the film. They first approached EMI, and EMI told them to promptly bugger off. They didn't get the concept. And beyond that point, Gerald and Roger had never made a proper movie. Interstage right, Alan Parker.
Parker was a big deal in 1980. Love it or hate it, fame made serious cash at the box office. Now, while people like me tend to view things from an artistic perspective, studios don't. Studios look at receipts and greenlight projects based on the sales records of the people involved. For example, Michael Bay gets everything greenlit. Insert barf noises here. <laughs> Parker made MGM so much money with fame, they said, sure, go ahead and make that Pink Floyd movie. Even if, like EMI, they didn't understand the concept. Scarf, Waters, and Parker finally assembled, and there was one pressing question to be answered. Which one's pink? The original plan was to have Waters play pink himself, but those plans were scrapped after screen footage of Waters tested poorly. Casting pink became such a trouble because you needed someone who could act and sing. Waters found what he was looking for in Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats. Here's the thing, though. Bob Geldof hated Pink Floyd. If when you see the film, you won't think there's much of a story, but basically the part I play is uh, this neurotic character who, because of events in his life, it's very sad, um, becomes increasingly more desperate and eventually breaks down, and his worst fantasies and imaginations become, for him, real and dangerous. Alan Parker rang up our manager, and said, you know, would I like to go down and talk to him? And um, I read the script and I wasn't very interested in it, to be honest with you. That's not, I'm not saying that to be no. smart. I actually wasn't, you know. And um, it was a shooting script, uh, just describing events. And uh, the Floyd's lyrics were on this side of the page and the scene would be on this side of the page. Right. And I'm not mad for the Floyd's music, you know, like hate their <laughs> lyrics, you know. Just in case you're keeping score at home, the guy who wrote Mood Mambo doesn't like the lyrics of Floyd. Okay. Bob's rejection of Pink is actually a great story. Allegedly, Geldof was in a cab arguing about it with his agent. Probably something like, fuck the Floyd or whatever the cool kids were saying those days. The cabbie just so happened to be Roger Waters' brother. But despite that little blip, everything worked out, and all four of these men worked together like a well-oiled machine. Okay, not really. Not at all. After the break, I'll tell you just how fucked up it all got. Let's get back to it. If you've noticed, I haven't mentioned any of the other members of Pink Floyd by name, and there is a good reason for that. The Wall, from concept to album to concert, was always Roger's baby. Now, don't get it twisted. Everyone chipped in on writing the music, but the vision? That's all Waters. On the same side of that coin is Gerald Scarf. He is the master of his own world, translating his visions to animations. At various times, Scarf had up to 40 animators working for him, reproducing his art on a massive scale, and Scarf was the boss. 
on a movie set, the director is king. It's the reason that so much prestige is placed on the director's name. For example, the poster for this movie above the title states an Alan Parker film. Three egos, each of them used to getting their own way. Of course there were going to be problems. Alan Parker describes making the wall as, quote, the most miserable experience I've ever had in filmmaking, end quote. Parker quit this project several times. He just walked off set in anger. Scarf took to shooting whiskey before each daily meeting. Not to be outdone, Waters took to wearing a jacket with knives on the back. Symbolism that's a little too on the nose and Roger Waters goes together like binge drinking and regrettable hookups, but it's why we love them. Surprisingly, Geldof is the only one of the principals that seemed to play nice with everyone. Despite Bob's initial hesitance to perform in the movie, he was a good sport about what was required of him. I mean, dude shaved his eyebrows, you know? Another example of the Geldof willingness is found in the thin ice scene that opens the movie. Rewatch that scene. Then think about how long it must have taken to shoot that scene. Then think about the fact that Bob can't swim. To keep Bob afloat, they used a plastic mold like the one they used for Superman's flying scenes in the Dick Donner movie. Of course, Geldof couldn't fit in Christopher Reeve's body cast, so they used a body cast of Sarah Douglas, who, the one who played Ursa, the bad Kryptonian. Another thing that Bob did was re-record the vocals for the In the Flesh songs, providing his own voice instead of Roger's. I actually really like that decision because it signals that there are differences from the album, but not that many differences. I got some bad news for you, Sunshine. Pink is the wellies back in the hotel. And they sent us along as a surrogate band. While we're on the subject of the fascist concert sequences, we have to talk about the skinheads. For realism, Parker had cast up to 380 actual skinheads for the concert scenes, most notably from the Tilbury Skins gang. Alan Parker describes working with this fourth wreck as the biggest problem on set, and considering the problems he was having with Waters and Scarf, that's saying something. Apparently, during the Waiting for the Worms segment, these guys got a little too into it, going as far as hassling some of the real townspeople while wearing their hammerskin uniforms. I want to go home, take off this uniform and leave the show. I'm waiting in this cell because I have to know, have to know, have I been guilty all this time, 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 
It took 61 days, 977 shots, 4,885 takes, 10,000 drawings, and 350,000 feet of film to complete the wall. The first public showing was at the 1982 Cannes Film Festival. The reaction was a collective, what the fuck? And you can't blame anybody for having that opinion. The film tells a story, but it does so through nonlinear techniques and mostly through symbolism. What's sort of astounding is that this film follows the Rockstar biopic formula so closely. The Rockstar biopic formula is as follows. Shitty, abusive, and neglected childhood. Shitty, non-supportive romantic relationships. Fame. Bullshit second act excess montage. And the final redemption through their art. Of course, the bullshit second act excess montage in this film includes Pink terrorizing a groupie and... And he finds his redemption, if you'll want to call it that, by becoming a proto-Nazi terrorist leader before being put on trial by a literal asshole with legs. Good morning, the worm, your honor. The crown will plainly show the prisoner who now stands before you was caught red and showing feelings. Showing Feelings of an almost human nature. This will not do. Roger Waters' big problem with this film is the quote, lack of laughs, end quote, which I don't really get as a criticism considering the source material. I mean, how many times does one get a fucking chuckle from happiest days of our lives? With that being said, I think The Wall album and film is a great exploration of depression and isolation. As someone that deals with depression, I have turned to the wall on numerous occasions because I felt that, you know, in some weird way, I related to Pink. The songs have resonated with me, and the visuals of the film have resonated with me for the entirety of my life, mostly in my darkest times. I know it sounds weird, but the wall, to me, is comfort food for the soul. Crazy over the Since its release, The Wall has become a cult classic, a rite of passage for teenage rock fans and midnight shows. My main criticism of the film is that it pales in comparison to the various stage shows I've seen, but live is always better for spectacle's sake. The next time you go to a live event celebrating Floyd, take a look at the audience. You'll see punk kids, suburban used-to-be rockers, the aged hippies, and even kids. The Wall is the center of the Pink Floyd Venn diagram. The nihilism on display, both lyrically and visually, is what kept me coming back to Floyd again and again. Hey, teacher, leave those kids alone is a perfect battle cry to convert a kid to the flock of Floyd, and the music will keep them there for life. I know it did for me.
For its historical significance and the music alone, I must grant this a four-star rating. Wrong! Do it again! Wrong! Do it again! Okay, okay, okay. Five stars. Thank you for joining me on this little field trip to the Midnight Show. I want to know how you feel about the wall, so make sure you email me at realrockpodcast at gmail.com. That's real with two E's. You can also follow me on Facebook at Real Rock Podcast and on Twitter at Real Rock Podcast. And make sure you go 